So, hi everyone, this is uh, John Reed, uh, free from corporateamerica.com, and I've got a special guest, Morris Rosenthal of phonerbooks.com. Say hi to the gang. Hi gang, happy to be here. Uh, and we're actually doing a test right now because I've got my, uh, I'm taping this on my $200 Zoom H2, and it's in competition with Morris's Walmart bought RCA something, $30 record. 114 hours of high quality audio. So we're going to find out uh, if if my 200 bucks are worth the investment or if Morris's uh, RCA recording is going to be superior. Plus, you can't fit that one in your pocket. No, I can't fit my Zoom H2 in my pocket at all. It looks pretty cool. It's got this 50s retro microphone. It, it looks like a broadcasting microphone. So this is uh, kind of a new experiment because this is a... Uh, I've done some podcasts from Free From Corporate America before, but they're really more like monologues for to explain the context of different chapters. And I really want to reboot the series uh, since the book is about to come out as of March 2009. It might be ready as soon as April. And uh, I do a lot of podcasting in SAP, but this is going to be a whole different thing entirely. And I'm going to hope, hopefully trick Morris into... Uh, Appearing as a regular guest, we'll see how that goes. But uh, most of you know Morris from his uh, self-publishing reputation. Uh, do you want to tell the the audience about your various projects? Well, my my main project, I suppose, ongoing in self-publishing is writing the self-publishing blog, which is a curse. And uh, I heartily don't recommend blogging for anybody who wants to do something constructive in the world. <laughs> now you guys can see why I want to have Morris as a regular guest because. The popular assumption out there is that blogging is a key way of building traffic, eyeballs, reputation, revenue, and Morris is going to shoot some holes in those right. uh, conceptions. Just like I was writing to some people today, if I had a page on, say, how to replace the rung of a chair, I would much rather have a link from some other guy's furniture repair hobby site on a page that he's repairing a chair then 10 links from the top 10 bloggers in the world saying, check out what Morris is doing, or this is really neato, keen, look at him use that glue. You know, links like that, Google is too smart to think that they really mean something. Google likes putting apples with apples, and most subjects just don't fit in with famous social bloggers other than other famous social bloggers. Right, so outside of the uh, blogger fan, fanboy and fangirl community, uh, you'd rather have a contextual, relevant link from someone in your industry. Oh, sure. Just like I'd rather have 10 steady new visitors a day who are actually looking for what I'm talking about than a 1,000 voyeurs sent over by a famous blog or by, oh, what are some of those, you know, uh, what was the one I mentioned the other day, the comedy site that was sending me a couple thousand people? It read it. Read it. I had a page that was listed as funny, and the page, in fact, was funny, but I don't expect those visitors to, you know, become avid fans of mine because I have one funny page on my website. It's just come and go. So one of the things uh, we'll pick some holes in in our discussions is the uh, the linking, tagging sites like StumbleUpon that direct a lot of traffic your way, but not traffic you're especially fond of. I, I remember once I saw, oh... 20,000 visitors from StumbleUpon in the course of a week um, on a series of pages that normally gets a few hundred visitors a day, and my book sales actually went down for the week. 
So before we get too further into a couple of guys shooting the shit on a podcast, and by the way, yes, you can swear, but we're going to try to keep that to a minimum. But if you feel the need, um, feel free. But I want to establish a little bit of the credibility of this conversation, um, partially in the context of the themes of my book, Free from Corporate America. And one of the major themes of the book is the importance of developing income-generating assets outside of whatever faith you might put in work or even conventional retirement accounts. And Morris and I have had some interesting discussions about the pros and cons of how to go about that. Um, But where Morris comes in and becomes very relevant is that another piece of the book is basically that profitability and lifestyle matter a lot more than, say, top-line revenue in many cases when you look at individuals. So, you know, I've had periods in my professional career uh, where I made a lot more money than Morris. Um, now is not one of them. Um, but I but I can't say that I necessarily had a better lifestyle than Morris because in the work of managing services and consulting firms on the SAP side, it was basically all-consuming in many cases. And so part of the credibility that Morris brings to this is from the angle of basically figuring out how to turn websites into real revenue generators that are based on content. So we're going to have some interesting talks about content versus aesthetics. In other words, you know, how pretty a website might look or how sexy, cool a blogger might be in terms of reputation doesn't necessarily mean anything in terms of bottom line results. And in fact, Morris appears in my uh, uh, Free from Corporate America book as uh, someone uh, at some point, if you read it closely, I t- refer to someone once or twice who uh, works a lot less than I do and makes a lot more money more efficiently. And so that's the bottom line. And 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 the other piece of credibility is just basically web traffic. So maybe you could just tell us a little bit about um, your traffic stats and and how you do each month. Well, first I just start with it's it's March and I just roughed out my taxes for the year. And in accordance with what John says. My total expenses for the business were 5% or less than 5%. I'm just failing to do the math rapidly in my head of my gross. So while that's horrific from a tax standpoint, and I end up paying the IRS around $0.39 on every dollar I make from dollar one in taxes, which would let you figure out my income if you're good at that sort of reverse engineering, um, it is good from the standpoint that when I when I get to the end of the year, aside from growing my business and having a business, of course, has a value. I do have money in the bank. It's not just that I, I made a lot of money. I make money. I pay taxes, and I get to keep that little bit that's left over after you pay the taxes and pay the you know pay for your living expenses and whatever else you're doing, retirement savings, etc. Whereas some people who do very well in terms of revenue generation even to the extent that, that they make a decent living and end up paying decent taxes, simply don't save a dime, which is a, not a good way to get yourself into a situation where you can continue to exist as an entrepreneur because one bad year can put you back on the unemployment line looking for a job, whereas you know, I could shut down for I could do nothing for years and it really wouldn't affect the way that I live. Right, and part of what we think about in terms of building sustainable websites that can generate that kind of income is just busting through a lot of misconceptions because you and I were actually at a social media event recently, and it was actually a very good event in terms of some capitalizing on social media trends and how to do it, but 
one of the big misconceptions that came out of that discussion was this whole notion that blogging somehow represents the best entryway into traffic. And you made a point recently in an email you sent to me about basically publishing firms that really have skipped Web 1.0 and moved straight to Web 2.0. Can you explain what that means and how that relates to blogging? Sure. I would I would define Web 1.0 as being static HTML pages, as being basic text pages that might have some photographs or other you know, features embedded, but in, at their core, basic text pages that sit there and really don't change from year to year other than maybe the copyright date or a little update if something changes out in the factual world. And those pages serve as a resource, and people recognize them as a resource, and that's crucial if you've organized your information in such a way that, oh, instead of having your impressions of the local college, you've built a site where people say, you want to know about the local college, well, this guy has some facts about it, and they're much more likely to link to your site and link it in context when they're talking about, say, facts about the local college. And therefore, you're much more likely to earn a serious share ongoing going forward of the traffic that can exist for that sort of thing. And I base this on on my experience. I've been doing websites since 1995, and I've been blogging for way too long. And on my phone or book site, which is my primary website, um, I think the most popular blog posts that I have for my all-time blogging, and there are far more blog posts on my site than static pages, ranks somewhere around 60th on any given day for popularity. Ahead of it are 60 plain text HTML pages, which is, oh, maybe a third of my entire stable of HTML pages. In other words, one-third of the pages that I've written over the years outgraw the most popular blog posts that I ever wrote, and there are, again, a lot more blog posts in those pages. And there, there are a lot of reasons for that, and one of them has to do with just the basic structure of a blog post, the over-specificity of the title, the over-specificity of the subject, and the tendency for blog posts to compete with each other on your own website for traffic, because unless you're really planning them like a book, they tend not to be in a, in a logical structure. Well, here's the really interesting part of it, because so many people are obsessed with Google PageRank, and what we can't help but notice is a lot of these so-called cool bloggers have really high page ranks, and yet you've often gone behind the scenes. Whoops, something's beeping. Was that you or me? Well, I don't know. Um, I'm still rolling. Yeah. Are you still going? No, I stopped. I wonder why. With 100 hours remaining. All right, we'll do a pause in the recording while Morris investigates. Yeah. <laughs> I'd have to read the instructions, John, but it's, it's enough of a test anyway that... You know, I'll be able to take it home and see. All right, well, we're down to one working unit, but uh, mine seems to be going well. So so let's get back to our discussion. Um, so anyway, I was talking about cool bloggers who have these high page ranks, and yet when you go crunch the traffic stats, a lot of times you find these folks don't get a lot of traffic, and, and then you go off on a rant about the importance of deep linking of pages. So maybe you can tell us about what that's all about. Yeah, well, first on the traffic checking front, Granted, the tools that I tend to use, Quantcast, Alexa, Google Trends, 
Uh, there are a few others you can find that do public stat re uh, reporting are not the be-all and end-all. They have all sorts of accuracy problems, particularly with community sites and login sites. But like any other data tool, they're better than nothing. So when you have nothing to go on and somebody doesn't report what their traffic is, and they say, gee, I got all these subscribers, and you go out and you look and you say, well, this is funny, but you know, all their links seem to be from other blogs, and I've never come across them on a search on their subject. And then you run the, the Quantcast or the Google Trends site, and it kicks out a number like, yeah, they're getting, you know, a 1,000 visitors a week. That starts looking pretty believable. Right. So basically, you can derive a high page rank on your homepage by getting a lot of links, say, from blog rolls of other hot, cool bloggers that link to your homepage, but it might not really be driving traffic to the deeper parts of your site. If Google decided to make your site, whoever you are, page rank 10, and you didn't have any content on it, you wouldn't get any traffic at all. I mean, the, the, content, the traffic is always going to be a result from search of some combination of the content that you have on your site and some combination of the authority that you have. And mere page rank is never the, the be-all to end-all. It's really contextual linking that controls Google's view of what something is about. Not what something is worth, but what something is about. And you have to keep in mind when Google is ranking these things, the first thing they're doing in a query, well, I might not be getting the order exactly right here, but the primary thing they're doing when you type in a query is they're trying to find an answer for it. Otherwise, the answer for every query would be Harvard or Google, you know, one of the PageRank 10 sites. Yet, you know, they, they really don't come up that often. And you can go around and you can look at sites that have very high page ranks because they have very high reputations but don't post a lot of content. And you'll find that they don't get a lot of traffic. Um, it would be a great thing for a publisher to wake up one day and find that he owned that domain and start covering it with things related to publishing, but that doesn't happen. And the truth is, in, in my experience, you really don't need page rank to draw traffic. What you need is good content and some number of contextual links. But even with a, a no contextual links directly to pages, as long as those pages are on a site that has links and has some related content, Google will give you your chance in the sun, and you can build from there. Right. And... Um you hadn't totally answered the question about your traffic stats. So maybe oh, I, no, I've just missed it or lost it. Yeah, but maybe one thing we can yeah. tell listeners is that you recently figured out your site gets more traffic every month than Amazon's uh, Moby site. Isn't that correct? I already don't remember. I think it was Moby. I don't remember if that was the case. I remember Moby didn't get the traffic that people uh, would assume based on Moby being the primary sort of ebook front-end site there. Though I guess you could you could make the argument that Amazon is intentionally drawing ebook traffic to Amazon now with their Kindle. Uh, so it's an experiment you can certainly do yourself as you're listening. Go to Quantcast or Alexa or Google Trends and check out Moby Moby Pockets uh, traffic and check out mine. I know none of them are particularly accurate, you know, to the closest thousand or anything like that on my own website. I would say I get, ooh, I probably average around 6,000 visitors a day from search. 
and maybe another thousand or so legitimate visitor, visitors of other kinds. And I, when I say legitimate, it's, it's very important if you look at your own web, web statistics to differentiate between real people coming to your websites and just various spiders and bots or subscriptions that, you know, somebody every time they open their browser, your RSS feed or your Atom feed gets hit. But that doesn't mean that they're actually coming to your website 20 times a day. It's just a sort of a pointless racking up of numbers. Now, to get a little more clear on this Web 1.0 versus Web 2.0 distinction, you've talked to me about how really effective websites are almost structured like books. They almost have different directories and sort of chapter sections. And can you tell us a little more about why that old-fashioned structure works so well versus cool blogging? Yeah, I, I suspect it's one of those evolutionary things that books are what they are today because they you know, evolved to be what they are today because they work. And consequently, the same design works on the Internet when it comes to organizing information in this sort of serial manner as if you were writing an essay at book length where you have sort of your introduction and your initial arguments and then you go through a series of proofs and you have a conclusion. You know, all books sort of work the same way. Non, you know, novels have plots. Uh, the exception would be reference books. If you have a dictionary or an encyclopedia, it doesn't have to do that. But the basic structure of a book is very good in the sense that unless you're a, a very bad writer, it helps you avoid this sort of endless overlap that you get with like blogs where you're essentially just repeating yourself or competing with yourself because the book sort of moves forward through time and it takes you through some sort of a journey. And if you're a good author, or at least some, an author who has a decent memory, you're not going to endlessly repeat yourself and you'll, you'll end up with a number of highly related but unique sections that happen to work very well with search. And once again, your your static pages on your site kick the butt of your blog pages from a traffic standpoint. Oh, sure. I mean, I, I should point out that, again, going back, maybe the, the archives for my blogs, I don't track this carefully anymore, but they don't get a, a thousand visitors a day. I would say the 400-plus archive blog posts from my publishing blog probably draw... 750 visitors a day or something like that from search and the most popular of them draws something like 50 visitors a day there are a couple more that come in at 20 30 I mean it, it follows a sort of a long tail distribution so what you have in the end is I probably have 15 or 20 blog posts that draw 80 percent of the traffic and then the other 400 hours and 800 hours and 400 blog posts that I put in draw 50 visitors a day, which is less than my top 50 static pages. And it's just, it's a horrific investment from a time perspective. Yeah, I guess the burning question is why you bother to blog at all. Well, I'm down to once a week, but uh, it is a bit of an addiction. Uh, when As soon as you make the mistake of allowing subscribers, which I actually didn't do for the first two or three years, then you feel like you have these people out there who are waiting for you to say something and want to come in and comment. And it, it does help keep you in sort of a loop that people are perhaps more inclined to flag you when they see something interesting 
if they think it's likely that you'll write about it in your coming blog post, whereas if essentially you have a static website um, with book-type material, resource-type material, you're not likely to get a whole lot of you know, back-channel news reporting coming your way. Well, you and I have talked also about that there may be a psychology of linking that comes into play a little bit, too, where for whatever reason, blog posts have a little more of a temporary rant of the day vibe. And so even if, even if you write a blog entry that is, say, a definitive treatment on uh, how to appear prominently in searches on Amazon, if you're a publisher, that that same post, if it was posted in a directory format as a different part of your site, it would seem more like a definitive treatment and probably be more likely to get links from other sources. I, th- I think that that's basically true, and I think it's also true that the, the problem with getting links from blogs is when those posts go into the archives, they're pretty unlikely to get linked because they're just buried down in somebody's navigation deep, particularly if they post a lot. And Most bloggers don't write these essay-length blog posts that some people make fun of me for doing, they throw out a paragraph or three paragraphs on their thought of the day, and consequently people just don't view those as a resource, and they they don't get linked in and of themselves. It's only the main page of the blog that gets linked, and the archive posts tend not to get a lot of traffic unless they are on unique subjects with nice specific titles and fit in with the overall context of the website. And linking a main page again and again is problematic from the vantage point of the long tail of search because the long tail of search is much better set up to have a whole host of pages that have different page titles and different keyword topics that are going to yeah, grab and long tail links. I mean, keep in mind the, the page rank that everybody obsesses about is to some extent passed on by the main page of the blog particularly if the other posts are listed in an archive there or if they're using one of those word jumble type mashups or whatever they're called that poke out the different types of blog posts from the past. But having a blog post with page rank doesn't mean that it's going to get any traffic. What that blog post needs is contextual link links from other pages on the internet about the same subject for it to appear to be a, an authority on that subject. There's just nothing. I, I think that if you Google Morris Rosenthal, my blog comes in relatively high for pages on my site because a lot of people who link to me or link to the blog, you know, put in the anchor text is Morris Rosenthal. Here's what Morris Rosenthal had to say. That doesn't help me any in search. You're going to find me number one for Morris Rosenthal regardless. Um, and it doesn't help describe whatever the content I'm writing about is. I'd much rather somebody linked here are some thoughts about publishing with offset presses that Morris Rosenthal said, you know, and it got the offset presses into the actual anchor, you know, anchor text for the link. One of the things that I come back to around, around blogging and why people get attached to it is that for many entrepreneurial types, when you think of successful bloggers, blogging is really a reputation building and marketing tool that is sort of a lost leader for the ultimate revenue sources, which are usually consulting, for example. And so I think the trap that some people fall into, and I know I kind of in some ways fell into it myself, is uh, assuming that I would always be excited to be a consultant and always be excited to have clients and 
Um, but you reach certain points in your life where you kind of want off that treadmill. And what's interesting about how you constructed your business is that you could certainly take on some consulting work if you chose, but you're not cultivating that type of situation in your profession as much as you are basically you have a revenue generating website and you take on any consulting just because you want to, but you don't have to do it. You're not yeah, on no, that I, treadmill at all. I, I don't do any paid consulting because I basically see it as a step backwards. I, I did years, that, more than a decade ago, I made a living for a while as a consultant, not in publishing. And, you know, I'm glad that it paid the bills at the time. But, you know, I see consulting is in the, the field of publishing as a, sort of an admission that you can't make a living selling books or selling your content. That's not true for everybody, but I think it would be true for me. I mean, I would do it if I needed to make money. Um, the, the sort of, uh, I don't know, Ferris wheel is the wrong word. What do you call those little cages that hamsters run in? Uh, hamster wheel? Hamster wheel. Sort of, I, I guess I'm looking for a more polite right way to say rat racer, you know. But yeah, yeah. Those spinning cages that you get on and you have to run faster and faster to create revenue. I mean, to me, it's it's, it's, not, a, it's not an attractive model for living or an attractive model for a business. What you really want is to essentially be in the manufacturing business where... Even if you're only manufacturing information or manufacturing content, as they say, and delivering it various ways, uh, at least you, you have that ability that your manufacturing process can run on without you, and you can earn a living and earn money without having to be out there selling your time all the time. Well, I think about it a lot because I'm still at a point in my business where I spend a lot of time cultivating consulting relationships and you know, a lot of the social media stuff I do is designed more to further consulting relationships and develop a reputation. But I'm pretty clear when you and I talk about business models that the ultimate is to be able to get up in the morning, put on my bunny slippers, and check my web stats, and and you know, like you do, and check your ebook sales and your your book sales and your you know Google sales. And you know, heck, if you want to take on some consulting, that's great, but it's not part of your model. Yeah, no, it's, so. it's 100% not part of my model. My, my great guilt is that I don't do more with my platform and that I haven't gotten around to starting another business yet, which we often talk about. But, it, yeah, I, I just don't see consulting as a thing. And we've both jo- joked about the other extreme, which is, you know, speaking for a living, going out and saying, I did this in 1995 or 2001 and... It's a bright new world, and everybody else should do this and buy my T-shirt. And that's it's not an attractive thing for me either. The uh, other topic that I wanted to touch on uh, in our debut of this discussion is the whole content over aesthetics debate. Uh, you you be the first to admit that you go by phonebooks.com, you're probably not going to ever win any web aesthetic awards. Um, at the same time, uh, we can point to a lot of folks on the web that have spent a whole lot more money than you have um, but haven't derived any meaningful ben- benefits. So maybe you could talk a little bit about content over aesthetics. Well, at, at the extreme when it comes to aesthetics, I recall visiting one publisher friend's website, a well-founded, well-funded New York publisher a few years ago, 
And the site was literally invisible to Google, with the exception of the publisher name, which was in the, the uh, domain name, because they had used one of the newer web design tools. It might have been, you know, one of the Adobe Flash type presentations. I don't recall the exact technology. Um, without implementing any of the fallback measures that they have for making sure that search engines see a little text there. So everything on the website was basically an image or video. And though it looked like elegantly designed text, if you visited the site, what you were really looking at was images of text. And therefore, it, just, it was a great hole to any search engine that came around and, and saw it. Um, so that's the absolute extreme. You can, you can certainly put a lot of effort into a website and have it be entirely invisible. Uh, but the next step is, when it comes to aesthetics, you have to ask whether you're doing the aesthetics for yourself or for your, your visitors. There's a very good argument for having a highly aesthetic website if you're, oh, selling fashion clothing or selling design services, if you're maybe an architect. I can think of all sorts of professions in which you might want to spend a few thousand dollars just having a really, really pretty website, you know, as an electronic business card. But if you're in the content business, I don't think that it really carries any weight with people at all. When they get to a website, when they're actually looking for an answer, they don't look at the advertisements, they don't pay attention to the aesthetics, they focus in on where's that text that matches what I searched on that's going to give me the answer that I need. And the cleaner and simpler you make it for them to find that text, the better off you are. I mean, I also violate one of the basic rules of the old Web 1.0, you know, text days for making a living, which is I don't play this tunnel game with an entry page and multiple entry pages and endless continue with the article links at the bottom, which were all designed to maximize the number of page views you get from a single visitor. My ideal is people who come to my website find the answer they're looking for immediately on the page that they arrive at, and if they look at any, any further pages from there, ideally it's because they're engaged with and really like my content, as opposed to, you know, damn it, they can't find what they're looking for. Yeah, so that explains partially a little bit of how you uh, often hold Web 2.0 uh, tools at arm's length or even make fun of them um, in the sense that a lot of the Web 2.0 technologies are not, um, uh, shall we say, uh, crunchy to Google like a text where Google can chew up text and make sense of it. Sure, it's, and it's, it's ironic. I, for giggles, I renamed my blog Self-Publishing 2.0. I'm not sure if anybody has sort of picked up on that yet. But the problem with video, which I've done quite a bit with, and podcasting, with which you've done quite a bit with, and even images, is Google doesn't know what the heck is going on with any of them other than the, you know, the single description you give. I think Google is closest probably to understanding podcasts if they wanted to. There's, you know, relatively decent uh, speech-to-text sort of applications that if they wanted to run around spend a lot of horsepower analyzing podcasts that they could reach, they could do that and index them. Understanding uh, videos would actually come second because videos also have a soundtrack, and again, they could do some sort of 
speech to text and try to understand what's in a video. Understanding what's in a picture turns out to be a horrifically difficult um, application for anything. I mean, robotics has been pursuing this for the last 30 or 40 years. How can you understand what's in a picture? And certainly when you get to any kind of a non-general picture, I mean, uh, if Google really wanted to put in the effort, I'm sure they could tell the difference between one person standing in a photograph and two people standing in a photograph. But telling whether or not those people are attractive or whether or not they have their clothes on or whether or not they're working with a screwdriver or a sledgehammer, that's the kind of stuff that just would take a tremendous amount of horsepower and I'd have to wonder why Google would even want to be in that business. I mean, currently their image search works on a sort of a volunteer basis that along with the context of text or from around the image, you can play this image labeling game on Google where they'll show you random images and you sort of jump in and give it a label. But uh, and as far as understanding images, audio, and video, it's, it's a ways off. Having said that, uh, you've shown a remarkable proficiency for for video. Uh, you've got a YouTube self-publishing channel that uh, has generated, I think you said, more than 100,000 views. And and uh, and actually, uh, you've shown yourself to, to actually be a pretty, I don't want to say rock star, but, but you've got a really uh, appealing video persona. How has video impacted your business? Well, it has been, of course, but uh, it's rather like the blog, and that, you know, it's something I've been able to invest a whole lot of time in with zero return. And now you have an expectant audience. And now I have a, an audience. I have it. It's true. I have uh, probably 50 subscribers for my video publishing channel at this point. Um, I don't think, I, I don't remember the last time I looked. My guess is that my publishing channel is around 60,000 views. It's my If It Jams channel, my little audio uh, auto repair and other stuff's channel that's already surpassed the publishing channel. So, I mean, my total views are well over 100. I might be up to 150,000 or so. And But, you know, on YouTube, that's sort of the difference. One, you know, attractive kid doing something entertaining can get millions of hits on a video or at least hundreds of thousands of hits on a single video. Uh, and I'm nowhere near that status. In fact... Most of the traffic to my publishing videos are driven by my text website. It's my auto videos and my computer repair videos that actually draw traffic from, from Google and from YouTube itself. Yeah, and you know, when we went to the social media event, part of what was interesting for me was that I think we're reaching some a bit of clarity around which websites provide the best investment on time for the for the business person who's looking to leverage those tools. And um, when the smoke clears these days, uh, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook seem to uh, be, like, all have a, a relevance for the uh, business person, and perhaps some degree YouTube or video channels as well. Uh, and um, I personally have a lot of questions about Facebook as a business uh, channel for a lot of people, but that's a sort of a separate discussion that probably shouldn't be had with you since uh, you don't really follow Facebook so carefully. But I think what's interesting is that of those three supposedly sexy social media sites that you know are all about helping businesses to take it to the next level on the web, you basically have no presence on it. I mean, I think oh, we're I mean, friends oh. on LinkedIn, but I'm one of maybe 20 I, of your friends. 
I, I don't think I have that many. I, I mean, I have a LinkedIn and a Facebook account because people sent me invitations. you got to do this, all right. So I did it. But I only visit those accounts if I have to respond to something. You know, if they send an email to my Google account and I, and I have something to respond to. And You know, the Twitter thing, I remember a few weeks ago you sent me a tweet from uh, Tim O'Reilly who was conferring status upon a, a guy who was writing about Amazon. And I thought that guy had, had written a pretty smart analysis of, of Amazon in some senses, but on one of his two major points, he was, he was just wrong, in, in my opinion. I didn't make a major study of it. So I know I commented on his blog pointing out what I thought was the problem. He had attributed half of Amazon's growth since 2006 to their growth in third-party sales, and I pointed out their third-party sales stopped growing in 2005, so that seems like a logical inconsistency. And I never saw him respond to my comment. He never got in touch directly with me, and that's okay. It's my ego isn't bruised, but I think it's a good example of the difference between these one-to-many and many-to-one sort of systems that people like talking about, that there's this illusion that the blogosphere and the Twitterverse are these multi-directional information-sharing places where all this great professional critique, etc., goes on. And it only goes on if the, the one who's at the top of whatever the, the Twitterverse or blog is, is listening. Because if they're not listening, if they're simply broadcasting out there or maybe only listening to a few select friends, um, it's it's really not a communication system. It's a you know just a listening system. And by the way, conferring status, um, I was a reference Morris made to. Uh, I guess Tim O'Reilly has said at, at a conference that that uh, when he tweets stuff out about people, that he's essentially conferring status conferring upon them. Status, I think that was the expression. And I think that's true in the Twitterverse. Right. I just don't know what you know what the exact parallel is in the bricks and mortar world. So, uh, so yeah, there's a whole lot of things we can talk about because there's a whole lot to talk about in terms of ebooks and uh, print on demand and Amazon. And so, hopefully, I can um, talk you into um, doing this again soon. The one thing I thought might be cool to talk about briefly, because I think it is so valuable, is this whole notion of of the internet providing a channel for market testing ideas. Because one of the things you really caution people against and it. This fits into the content and aesthetics conversation. Aesthetics almost ties in a little bit to ego-driven ventures, per se, and a lot of publishing is very ego-driven, where you know you put out a book and you, you have some type of vanity associated with the project, and, and yet many people who put out books also do want to find them to be successful. And your whole point is, before you go so far as to put a book out there in the world, you should have already market tested those ideas uh, via uh, an internet presence. Can you tell us a little bit about that philosophy? Well, sure. I, it has to do with a, I'm trying to think of, I had a cute quote lately about most authors shoot themselves in the foot before they even put it in their mouths, you know, something along those lines. Because you can do a tremendous amount of work on producing, for example, a book, since we are sort of talking about self-publishing here, for which there really isn't an audience. And that doesn't mean that the book is bad. It doesn't mean that your research is bad. It doesn't mean you're a stupid person. 
It just means that whatever it is that interested you enough to write a book isn't necessarily interesting to a significant enough number of people that you're ever going to reach them um, in enough quantity to make money doing the book any way you go about it. And, I mean, I've had an, ex an experience doing that with, you know, a project that I, I did for personal reasons, which were the translations of my great-grandmother's Hebrew works. I basically spent three years working more or less full-time translating, and, uh, you know, I... I certainly lost money on the project, but I mean, if you look, what was the, the total sales, uh, the total sales over the years, uh, revenue from it would have been well under a thousand dollars. It might have been a couple of hundred dollars. I don't even remember at this point. And that was a book that I was actually able to get out in front of people through some relatively prestigious reviews. And you had that experience yourself getting a, uh, a book review in a major metropolitan newspaper. And did it have much impact on sales? Or No, it had, it had almost no impact on sales. Yeah, and I think I sold 20 copies. That's fairly typical for the difference between having a book that, that people are looking for and want to read and a book that even if you try to cram it down their their throats, they you know, it just it doesn't ring up the cash register because it's not something that they want to buy. And if you're doing this as a business, publishing as a business, you really have to try to get your ego out of the process, be your own acquisitions editor and decide what books you're going to publish based on whether or not people are likely to buy them. And the thing that the static website allows you to do by posting early drafts of the work, related work, even the finished version of the work in some cases, is see how many people are coming to the website, particularly relative to other projects you've done or, or projects you know about, and you can get a pretty good idea of how many books you're actually going to be able to sell. And there's also some differences there. If, it, if it's not going to work as a book, maybe it'll work as an e-book. There are things people are, are willing to pay money for for instant gratification that they're not willing to even wait two days for an Amazon Express uh, shipment on. Mm -hmm. In my um, upcoming book, Free from Corporate America, I refer to this phenomenon you're talking about as the feedback loop. And Historically, the feedback loop cost quite a bit of money to participate in because you had to do expensive R&D projects and survey groups and all that kind of stuff. And the Internet essentially is sort of an instant feedback loop, and while you can't ever get back the time you invested, you get a pretty good sense of where where the interest level is for your projects. And, and essentially, I think you reach a bit of a crossroads. And there's many crossroads in publishing. For example, should you self-publish or should you go to a a trade publisher, and, and it's true that even of sellable ideas, not all of them are good self-publishing ideas, and that's something that we ran into with Resumes from Hell, where in the final analysis, it's a broad category humor book. It's not easy to quickly identify who that target audience is, which by definition sort of rules it out for a good self-publishing product. So I think you reach these crossroads, and one of the crossroads, obviously, that you reach is... I'm putting out stuff, but I'm not getting the right kind of feedback. And at that point, you know, you might proceed with the project for personal reasons, but you have to be aware as a business person at that point that you're shooting yourself in the foot. And it's also it's important to realize there are two types of feedback from a website. One type is the actual people you hear from who, first of all, will give you some sort of 
constructive or destructive criticism, but some, you know, it's different feedback than what you're going to get from your family and friends, and that's very important. And they'll ask you questions and maybe give you ideas of what would be more useful to them, and all of that is great. But equally, if not more valuable, is just the web server statistics that tell you whether or not people are coming. Because when you get out there in the world with something, um, if you've written a, if you're in the process of writing a book about the best restaurant in Northampton, Massachusetts, and you put it out on Google, you might find that you have a very active cadre of people who start jumping on there and sending you emails and saying, no, that's not the most interesting restaurant. No, I ate at this place. It was better. And in, a, in the course of a couple of months, you might hear from 20 or 50 or whatever number of people and think, this is great. I never got this kind of feedback before. But what it is is you've just hit one of those spots that people like discussing in a town where people like discussing things and going out to eat. If you actually went and published that book, which was, what did we call it, the best restaurant in Northampton or something? Right. I, you know, I doubt all of those people who commented to you would even buy a copy, and that would be the sum total of the potential audience because it's just not going to go anywhere else. Well, I think we prowled on for about long enough for the first recording. Uh, did did we skip anything that you want to mention? We might have left the kitchen sink out. Yeah, I, I guess so. I, I think I left a few topics for the the next time around. But uh, anyway, I hope our listeners enjoyed sitting in on more. This, this conversation kind of gives you a flavor for some of the themes that that we've uh, gone off about many, many times in our own personal conversations and also a little bit of a flavor of the the clash of business models between the the blogger, consultant, uh, aesthetic-obsessed person and the uh, guy who uh, gets up and uh, checks his stats in the morning and uh, yawns and uh, does a home project and goes back to bed. And, you know, you have to take a look at which, uh, which lifestyle is ultimately best for you. I've taken one nap this year. <laughs> That's true. I actually take more naps than you do as well. So, again... Um, but uh, uh, I hope to hear some re- reader comments on, on this uh, first audio podcast. And uh, it looks like my Zoom H2 uh, whipped Morris's recorder, so we can't even give you a trial recording because mine's the only one still standing. But thanks for joining us, and uh, uh, check back soon.